It is not power that corrupts, but fear. Fear of losing power corrupts those who wield it, and fear of the scourge of power corrupts those who are subjected to it. Aung San Suu Kyi. Welcome to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott, with Uncle Ian. Today's matchup features two female dictators for ladies' round. Yes, we have, of course, the Egyptian ruler Cleopatra up against the Russian Tsarina Empress Catherine the Great. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We have created a knockout tournament to determine the single biggest dictator of all time. Each episode features a matchup of two leaders where we discuss the life and times of each dictator. The loser of each battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest dictator. Up first we have Cleopatra. The last queen of Egypt. Unqueen, please tell us about Cleopatra. Cleopatra VII, also known as Theophilopata, which is translated as father-loving goddess. Queen of Egypt between the year 51 and the year 30 BC. So all the dates when we talk about Cleopatra are before the birth of Christ. She was the last in the line of pharaohs which stretched back over 3,000 years and she was the last ruler in a dynasty which dated back three centuries. The dynasty started with Macedonian general Ptolemy. Now for those of you who've read a little bit about Egyptian history, you'll be aware that Ptolemy starts with a P, but it's a silent P. He inherited the Egyptian section of Alexander the Great's empire after Alexander's death in the late 4th century BC. Alexander the Great um, had a lot of talents and one of them was founding cities and naming them after himself. So there's dozens of Alexandrias scattered around the Middle East, but the Alexandria in the Nile Delta is uh, the one we know best. To help distinguish the Ptolemies, some of them had nicknames. He was known as Aulates, which is translated as the flute player. The word pharaoh, by the way, derives from the word per a'a, which means great house, a direct reference to the fact that the pharaohs lived in a palace. They were as close to divine as the Egyptians could imagine. They were a bridge between gods and humans. Um, And pharaohs were supreme rulers in every sense, religious, military, social, law and order, management of public works, foreign policy, trade. The, The pharaoh was the supreme ruler in every sense of the word. I think the length and continuity of the Egyptian culture and the pharaohs as the ruling institution is best summarized with the following fact. 
that Cleopatra lived closer to our time than to the building of the Great Pyramid of Giza. That's how long that dynasty had been in place. It does put into perspective, Scott, you're right, just the sheer length of the pharaoh's rule. Cleopatra's descended from the Greek slash Macedonians. It's not likely that she had a lot of Egyptian blood because of all the incest. They just kept marrying each other until all the way down you get Cleopatra. You're right. The Ptolemy dynasty very much kept it in the family. So brothers and sisters would be co-rulers. If there wasn't a sister, then a cousin would get promoted. And they certainly spoke Greek at the court. Cleopatra was born in the year 69 BC, one of six children of the 12th Ptolemy. Ptolemy XII was an ally and friend of Julius Caesar. What was the benefit of that? He knew that Caesar's armies could easily overpower Egypt if they wanted to. So it was if you can't beat them, join them. So he wanted to keep Egypt independent and he decided that allying himself with Caesar was the best way to do that. Ptolemy XII died in the year 51. Unusually, he died of natural causes. There wasn't a lot of that in ancient Egypt. He was succeeded on the throne by his eldest daughter, Cleopatra. Now, she was the seventh to bear that name and co-ruler with Cleopatra, as per Egyptian tradition, was his eldest son, who became Ptolemy XIII. So that's Cleopatra's younger brother. At the time, Cleopatra was age 17 and Ptolemy XIII was age 10. So purely from her age, Cleopatra held seniority. She decided to ally herself with the Roman general Pompey the Great, who at that stage was fighting against Julius Caesar. She wanted Pompey's help to establish her superiority over her brother. When Pompey came to Egypt in the year 48, Ptolemy's supporters decided to kill Pompey in order to win favour with Caesar. Julius Caesar was absolutely horrified at the fact that foreigners dared to kill a great Roman, even though privately he acknowledged they'd probably done him a favour. He thought it was totally beyond their right to have killed a great Roman. When Caesar first arrived to Alexandria, he he finds Pompey beheaded, not happy. He summons Cleopatra and Ptolemy to a meeting. However, Cleopatra struggled to attend this meeting because she had fled her brother to Syria, where she was starting her campaign to overthrow her brother. She gets this call, Julius Caesar demands to meet you. She then has to get to Alexandria, despite the fact that her brother had blockaded the city, and if she's caught, she's killed. So the story goes, she's rolled up in a carpet, brought into Alexandria, The carpet is unrolled, unfurled in front of Julius Caesar's feet. She springs out and she's the most beautiful thing that he had ever seen and decided they shack up together. And then, well, it was game over for Ptolemy at that point. Although Julius Caesar was bisexual, he didn't make the same claim that his sister Cleopatra made. Caesar supported Cleopatra's claim to the throne. Roman reinforcements arrived early in the year 47. Shortly after that, Ptolemy XIII fled and he drowned in the Nile. 
When Ptolemy fled and his boat sunk and he drowned in the river, the reason he drowned Uncle Ian was because he was still wearing his golden armour that he was quite fond of, and so he sank. A rookie error. Another sibling, this time her sister Arsinoe IV, was briefly proclaimed queen by the people of Alexandria. The sister Arsinoe was captured, and this left Cleopatra as queen with Roman support in conjunction with another sibling, the next younger brother, who became Ptolemy XIV. So, the year 47, busy year. Cleopatra and Caesar decided to seal their alliance and had a son. While Caesar had to be careful about whether he acknowledged paternity of the son because he had a wife in Rome, he never went out of his way to deny paternity. So the son was named Caesarion. Shortly after that, Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy XIV visited Rome and in fact were in Rome in March of 44. And if you have a hazy memory about what happened in March of the year 44 in Rome, I would recommend you listen to episode one all over again. I'll give you a sneak preview. Julius Caesar is stabbed to death multiple times. Spoiler alert. People may not have listened to episode one yet. Cleopatra's in Rome at the time, decides she should probably go. So after returning to Egypt, Ptolemy XIV died soon after they returned from Rome. So Cleopatra's siblings did not have a very good track record. I don't think that was natural causes. It is unlikely it was natural causes because he was still only in his teens. She could now model herself as a queen in her own right, unencumbered by any siblings, and she remade herself in the image of the mother goddess Isis. With Cleopatra killing a brother off, she still technically has to find a male to become co-ruler with, and so she chooses her infant son, Caesarion, but he doesn't contribute much to policy. It's important uh, that we keep up with the scoreboard, Scott. He's Ptolemy the 15th. He becomes Ptolemy the 15th Caesarion. So her father was the 12th. Her younger brothers were the 13th and 14th. And her son was the 15th. All of that has happened within a period of less than 10 years. So if you missed reading the morning paper one day, then you're never going to catch up. After Caesar's death, Rome went back into civil war. Why are we talking so much about Rome when we're really talking about Cleopatra? It's because Cleopatra's story became such a major part of the end of the civil wars. So the first part of the civil war was Caesar's heir and great-nephew Octavian, together with Caesar's general Mark Antony, fought against the assassins Brutus, yes, that Brutus, and Cassius. They are successful at the Battle of Philippi. Antony and Octavian then attempted to seal their alliance by having Mark Antony marry Octavia, who was the sister of Octavian, remembering that their great-uncle was Julius Caesar. So Antony is marrying into the, the Julian family. Octavian took control of the western half of the empire, Antony the eastern half and hence he met Cleopatra. Cleopatra, she's having a good time. She's in Egypt. She's ruling Egypt on her own. Everything's looking good. 
Then she realizes there's all these skirmishes going on in Rome. She's got to pick a Roman to back. She has a look around. She goes, Mark Ant, he looks like a strong general who's going to be able to protect Egypt and protect my power base. So she invites Mark Antony to come to Egypt and meet with her. She arrives on a barge, which has sails made out of purple silk. She's dressed as the goddess Isis and makes a very good impression (laughs) on Mark Antony. She's very bold. Imagine if I rocked up, Uncle Ian, to a first date, dressed as the god of sex and love. I don't think I could pull it off. Mark Antony falls in love. Forgets that he's married to his good friend's sister. Mark Antony is wowed by her exotic good looks and charm. There's a line from the famous French mathematician Pascal on the nose of Cleopatra. If it had been shorter, the face of the entire world would have been different. Basically saying that the entire history of the world changed because of the way she looked. If she looked a little bit different, Mark Antony would have looked the other way and kept going. But... That's not where our story goes. Uncle Ian, tell us the rest of the story. They became allies and lovers. Cleopatra gave birth to twins in the year 40. I like the way she went about her business, just going around seducing Roman emperors. It's not a bad idea. If Trudeau's ever in trouble, he could have seduced Trump. And then when Trump goes, he seduces Joe Biden and forces him to leave Jill and move to Ottawa. It's a great scheme. I think that she should be applauded for that. It does imply she didn't have that many cards in the deck, though. They had a drinking club together, Antony and Cleopatra, called the Inimitable Livers. I don't know if he was really cut out to be the strong man he wanted to be, particularly with Octavian as his rival. In the year 37, Antony, trying to regain lost prestige, led a campaign to expand Roman territory in the east. He mismanaged the campaign and needed reinforcements, which in fact had the result of diminishing his prestige. He became more and more dependent on Cleopatra and totally repudiated his marriage to Octavia. Octavian was unhappy with his sister being humiliated. Cleopatra's relationship with Mark Antony is the perfect excuse for Octavian to declare war on Antony. Because the real reason is that Mark Antony declared Alexandria the capital of Rome, which is a weird thing to do, given that Rome has always been the capital of Rome. And he sent out a challenge to Octavian. And Mark Antony's relationship with Cleopatra formed the perfect excuse for Octavian to invade and and cast her as... What did you call her? A foreign seductress. And and Mark Antony had fallen into that honeypot trap. I think Antony was always going to self-destruct at one stage. Antony did like a drink and he did like a bit of a fling. He loved a feast. And I think he always had that self-destructive element. And Cleopatra fed that. And the final showdown happened in the year 31. That was the Battle of Actium, which is in Western Greece. That was basically for control of Rome. I can't say the Roman Empire as such because they didn't have an emperor yet, but they would get one very soon. At one stage, though, Cleopatra realises that Antony needs reinforcements. She flees in order to go and obtain reinforcements. 
when Antony saw Cleopatra's ship leave, he turned around and followed, and therefore Antony was unsuccessful, to say the least, at the Battle of Actium. Octavian followed them to Egypt. When Antony had one last chance to stand against Octavian, his navy and army changed sides, went over to Octavian's side. Antony realised it was all over. Cleopatra sent word that she was dead. How did she do that? That really should have given things away. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it was actually a note saying, I'm dead, signed by Cleopatra. I think it was more a trusted messenger. Went to Antony and said, my queen is dead. When he heard this, he attempted to kill himself. He did actually live long enough to hear that she wasn't dead, was taken to her and died in her arms. A little bit Romeo and Juliet going on here. Very much so. Now, Shakespeare drew a lot on Plutarch when he wrote Antony and Cleopatra, and I suspect he drew a little bit on this when he wrote Romeo and Juliet. Octavian's men were worried that Cleopatra would kill herself. He wanted to capture her, either to maintain the alliance or to have the option of taking her back to Rome in chains. While he was impressed with her charisma, he was certainly not tempted by her exotic charms, as Julius Caesar and Mark Antony had been. When they met, he reassured her that he would not harm her children or harm her country. Cleopatra's death. Supposedly, the asp was smuggled to her inside a basket of figs. That's the snake. Now, snakes were paramount in Egyptian mythology. Jewellery and headdresses held snakes in very high esteem. It does make a very good story. There was talk about there being a couple of prick marks on her arm. One of the things that makes it hard to believe it was an asp is because two of her slaves took their lives at the same time out of loyalty. And to get one asp to kill one person is actually very hard to orchestrate. To get, to get one asp to strike and kill three, you need a very big asp in order to do that. Unless you're in Australia, in which case it could take down half the country. Well, that's exactly right, given that we have so many of the world's deadliest snakes. But Cleopatra didn't know about the King Brown snake. <laughs> she had been known to experiment with poisons, so it's quite possible it was some poison that was smuggled in so that at the age of 39, she was able to take her own life. There is a theory, despite Octavian's propaganda against her, Cleopatra was quite popular in Rome, particularly with the women of Rome. There's a theory that Octavian offered her the poison himself so that he wouldn't have to take her back to Rome in chains in the triumph, that is the ticker tape parade customary in Rome. He worried that in doing so, it would turn public opinion against him. So he gave her the way out and gave him the excuse not to do the triumph. That's the theory. But I like the snake. The snake certainly does make a good story. Caesarion outlived her by 18 days. Octavian formally annexed Egypt on the 31st of August in the year 30 BC. The fact that it was the month of August is actually quite relevant. The chap that we've been calling Octavian, within a couple of years, he reinvented himself and became known to history as Augustus. 
It wasn't called August at the time. It was called Sextus because it was the sixth month of the year. Remember, the year started in March. <laughs> so he changes his name to Augustus, new start for him, yeah. and then changes the name of the month he was born in to August. In the same way that we got the month of July from the name of Julius. So how is Cleopatra remembered? Mainly for the myths surrounding her appearance. Unfortunately, her coins are unflattering. And maybe she wanted to look determined on her coins and ruler-like. However, I'd like to uh, quote Plutarch. According to my sources, in itself, her beauty was not absolutely without parallel, not the kind to astonish those who saw her, but her presence exerted an inevitable fascination and her physical attractions combined with the persuasive charm of her conversation and the aura she somehow projected around herself in company did have a certain ability to stimulate others. The sound of her voice was also charming and she had a facility with languages that enabled her to turn her tongue like a many-stringed instrument to any language she wanted with the result that it was extremely rare for her to need a translator in her meetings with foreigners. High praise indeed from Plutarch. Given that it was in Octavian's interest to portray her as an Eastern seductress, I think that's part of the reason why the legends of her beauty have lived on throughout the centuries. That ability to learn over a dozen languages really helped her because no matter who she met, she could charm them and bypass those translators and the advisors and she could run the whole show herself like a true dictator. And we don't have too much information from the Egyptian sources about her rule, but we do know that when she inherited the throne from her father, Egypt was in a great debt. He had mortgaged Egypt to the Romans. And then we know that by the time that she had shacked up with Mark Antony, Egypt was so prosperous that she was able to be funding Mark Antony's misguided campaigns. So we know that she was able to run an effective and frugal government. We don't use that word frugal in this podcast very often, Scott. It's time to move on to our next dictator, Catherine the Great, who ruled Russia from 1762 to 1796. Why did she have so many lovers? Why was she so great? Catherine was born on the 2nd of May, 1729, and actually given the name of Sophie Frederick Auguste Princessin von Anhalt Zerbst. That doesn't sound very Russian. It doesn't sound very Russian, and that's because she was born in the German state of Prussia, in a city which confusingly is now part of Poland. Prussia, with a P, which you do pronounce, unlike Ptolemy, Prussia with a P would unify with its neighbouring states a century later to form Germany. Catherine was also beautiful to look at. She's described as both graceful and majestic. She was also sharp and witty. Her remarks could charm or wound. So Catherine was chosen to marry the heir to the Russian throne. The arrangement was actually part of a conspiracy involving her mother, a Russian count, and the Prussian king, Frederick the Great, to undermine Russia's alliance with Austria and foster a new alliance with Prussia. The conspiracy failed 
and the Russians later exiled Catherine's mother from Russia for spying for the Prussian king. However, the Russians liked Catherine. In 1745, she was married to her own cousin, the heir to the Russian throne, Peter III, who himself was Prussian with a P. Peter was the nephew of the childless Russian empress Elizabeth. Elizabeth herself became empress by locking her predecessor, Ivan VI, in prison, which was pretty harsh given that Ivan was a two-month-old baby. So Catherine moves to Russia and marries the heir, Peter. She learns Russian, while her homesick husband, Peter, barely bothers. Catherine changes her name from Sophie because it sounds too German. She also converts from Lutheran to Russian Orthodox. Big, big favourite with the fans. Very much so. Her marriage to Peter is a disaster. Peter is childish, cruel, neurotic, and a raging alcoholic. And not in the fun way. He once forced her to watch him hang and execute a mouse he found in their apartments. He humiliates Catherine publicly and repeatedly. He bows on her on their wedding night to get drunk with his mates. Peter doesn't know how to exactly consummate the marriage. He prefers to play in bed with his Prussian army figurines. Empress Elizabeth eventually brings in an experienced widow to teach him how to have sex. However, their firstborn child is likely to have been fathered by Catherine's lover, Sergei Saltikov. Nearly put a CK on the end of that word. (laughs) So Catherine's married to the heir. The Empress Elizabeth dies in 1762. As a result, Catherine's husband, Peter, becomes Emperor of Russia. Peter was a mixed bag as emperor. His main problem was that his loyalty to Russia was questionable. No Trump jokes, Uncle Ian. He spoke openly about the greatness of Prussia, with a P, and their king, Frederick. He even changed the Russian army uniforms from Russian green to Prussian blue. The awkward thing was that he inherited from Elizabeth a country at war with Prussia. The Seven Years' War that started under Elizabeth was going very, very well. However, Peter ends the war and returns all of the conquered land for which thousands of Russians had died, giving the land back to Prussia. At home, Peter took land from the church. He also made the killing of a serf a crime, which the nobles thought was outrageous. (laughs) Uncle Ian, what is a serf? So in English, we spell it S-E-R-F. The nearest that we can describe a serf is as a peasant. You're basically tied to the land. Been described as barely distinguishable from a chattel slave. The main difference was that they were tethered to the patch of land that they worked rather than to their owner. That's right. And when the land got sold, the serf stayed with the land, just in the same way as the fences and the buildings were. In the minds of the nobles, making surf killing a crime was like making breaking a teapot a crime. It's my teapot. I'll do what I want with it. Catherine, with the help of her two lovers, Saltikov and Orlov, organises a coup against Peter. The military, the church and the nobles all now hate Peter, so there was no resistance. Catherine 
while wearing full military uniform, gives an impassioned speech to Russian soldiers outlining the abuses of her husband and leads them on horseback to arrest him. <laughs> Peter actually learns of the coup attempt, but he doesn't believe it and walks around the palace looking for Catherine. But she's not there. She's on the throne. Catherine has Peter arrested and thrown in prison. Peter was likely killed in prison by Orlov's brother a few days later. But Catherine announced Peter died of hemorrhoids. Getting one back at him, I think, for all those embarrassing things he did to her. Her coronation took place in September 1762 with a new crown that was half silver, half gold, symbolizing the East and West Roman Empire. You have to remember that the word Tsar comes from the word Caesar. Every dictator loves embodying and drawing from the inspiration of the Roman Empire. If at some way, Scott, we can work out that the name Castro was derived from the word Caesar, then we've turned full circle. <laughs> the crown contained 75 pearls and 4,936 diamonds. The crown that she had made from a French designer would serve as the Russian crown until the death of the Russian monarchy in 1917. So Catherine, having assumed the throne, gave out her instruction liberalize Russia, educate women, and serfdom, introduce the presumption of innocence to the courts. While Peter had spent their marriage drinking and playing with his toys, Catherine spent her time reading Enlightenment philosophers like Montesquieu and Voltaire. She had the greatest library in Europe. She was well-read and idealistic, and now she has power. One surprising thing she did was have herself inoculated to smallpox, she was one of the first people to try immunisation and successfully convince others to do the same. Aside from that, Catherine's rule is very frustrating. She fails to implement the high ideals of the Enlightenment. Let's start with the serfs, the slaves tethered to the land. She saw what happened to Peter when he undermined the nobles' power over the serfs, and she traded the serfs' freedom for her continued power. The worst part is the number of serfs in Russia increased during her reign. She even passed a law requiring their master's permission for a serf to set foot outside the designated plot of land. Catherine herself owned 500,000 serfs. Her aspirations for women also never materialised. She built a single school for girls, which is largely a symbolic achievement. Part of the way Catherine's remembered now is through her cultural enjoyment. She commissioned a lot of art. She kept a lot of musicians in a job. In fact, she was a composer herself. She wrote operettas, and she was quite a prolific writer. So to some extent, she brought Europe and Europe's culture to the Russian court. But the key thing there is that that didn't help the average Russian in any way. The fact that the the nobles got to experience music and art and literature from Europe. Didn't help the serfs, didn't help the, the people out in the villages. There were mostly vanity projects for urban areas that did nothing to improve the lives of the majority rural living Russian people. It's more a series of missed opportunities. And when the Enlightenment philosophers and the French Revolution questioned the divine right of kings and queens to rule, Catherine truly began to distance herself from Enlightenment thinking. The Russian author Alexander Radishkev wrote a book outlining the deplorable social conditions of the serfs 
and a potential uprising. Catherine had the book burned and the author exiled to Siberia. Book burning, Uncle Ian, 10 points to Catherine. Mm. He got off easy. The punishment for multiple conspiracies was to have your ears pulled off and sent to Siberia. I suppose you can't lose your ears to frostbite that way. Catherine realises that political philosophy is easy in theory, but nasty in practice. When speaking to a French philosopher, Denis Diderot, she says, While you write on unfeeling paper, I write on human skin. I like that. Catherine brought Russia into the world. She entered into European politics as a mediator between the powers. She made free trade agreements with Britain. She also conquered and colonised neighbouring territory, expanding the size of Russia by 520,000 square kilometres. She established the first Russian colony in the Americas. Uncle Ian, where would that be? I think that was in Alaska, Scott. That's right, it was in Alaska. She had placed her lover on the throne in Poland. But when Poland attempted to liberalise and become democratic, she betrayed him and organised the destruction of Poland. In 1795, Poland was partitioned and devoured by Russia, Prussia and Austria. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it, Uncle Ian? It set the blueprint for fellow dictators Stalin and Hitler to follow a century and a half later. Poor Poland. (laughs) They just cop it. To achieve the annexation of Poland, 12,000 Poles were killed. She also successfully annexed southern Ukraine and Crimea from the Ottoman Empire, that's Turkey. This ended the kidnapping and enslavement of her people to be sold in Turkish slave markets. Around 20,000 Eastern Europeans were taken as slaves each year. The word slave actually comes from the word Slav. Because so many Slavic people were taken, it became a synonym for an enslaved person. And in the recently conquered part of Ukraine, the city of Ekaterinoslav was established, which literally means to the glory of Catherine. Was that because there was already an Alexandria down the road? (laughs) That's right. Naming a city after yourself is a very Russian dictator thing to do. Look, you can't just say it was a Russian thing to do, Scott. Remember (laughs) Devaliaville? That's right. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? I was thinking of Leningrad and Stalingrad. After Catherine's victory, she embarked on a great journey to the Crimea. Her enormous carriage had a bedroom, a sitting room, and a library. It required 30 people to pull it. (laughs) It's often compared to Cleopatra and her excellent barge. Those 30 people that were pulling it at least got away from serfdom for a little while. (laughs) That's right, they were allowed to step off that piece of land they were tethered to. It was during this war with the Ottomans that she won that Catherine's husband Peter came back from the dead. In 1773, Yemelian Pugachev incited a massive uprising against Catherine while pretending to be the dead emperor Peter III. He had great success initially conquering land and cities, but Catherine's army won a stunning victory, killing 10,000 men outside the city of Zaritsyn modern-day Volgograd. 
Uncle Ian, are there any other dictators who have won a stunning victory outside of Volgograd? I seem to recall that we've covered one or two that have had some success in that part of the world. So Volgograd used to be called Stalingrad. Joseph Stalin had a great success there in World War II, in which he finally turned back the Nazi tide. I think Genghis Khan had had some success in that territory in years gone by as well. Perhaps not quite as well documented as the Siege of Stalingrad in 1942. The Peter impersonator, Pugachev, was captured after this battle and sent to Moscow in a cage. Catherine had him publicly decapitated and drawn and quartered in Bolotonia Square. Believe it or not, Uncle Ian, this was actually a mercy because the original plan was first to cut him into quarters and then behead him. So he got off a little bit lighter. Let's talk about the lovers. Rightly or wrongly, Catherine is famous for her love life. She was known in Europe as a promiscuous, sex-obsessed nymphomaniac. This made great headlines and propaganda, but it's not entirely true. She certainly got around more than the average woman of the time, but no more than the average European monarch. Catherine did have many lovers, 22 that we know of, but she was a serial monogamist, falling in love with one at a time rather than just sleeping around. First was Sergei Saltikov, the probable father of the next emperor, Paul I. Then there was Stanislaw Poniatowski, the man she placed on the throne in Poland before betraying him and partitioning and annexing Poland. There was Gregory Orlov, the military officer who helped her orchestrate the coup that overthrew her husband. Alexander Vasilichkov was thrust in front of Catherine to end the influence of Orlov. Uh, Vasilichkov was effectively her prisoner and was forbidden to leave the palace without her permission. Like a serf. <laughs> That's right. He was a sex serf. <laughs> he knows his way around a hoe. After that came Potemkin, who transitioned from lover to advisor. Last was Zuboff who became Catherine's lover when she was 60 and he was 22. Platon Zuboff, according to uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore in his masterpiece, The Romanovs, wrote about Zuboff that he was arrogant, inept and over-promoted and that he was definitely no Potemkin. <laughs> arrogant, inept and over-promoted. Yeah, I've worked for people like that. <laughs> Catherine died in November 1796 while having sex with a horse. That was the story in Europe, at least, as a result of her reputation. In truth, she died of a stroke. I suppose that's better than with the horse. It's very hard to smuggle a horse in a basket of figs. <laughs> Catherine's son, Paul, became emperor. Paul gave Peter, Catherine's long-dead husband, a state funeral and even buried him with Catherine, which of course Catherine would have hated. He must have suspected he was of illegitimate birth, so I suppose it gives his rule more legitimacy to pretend his parents' marriage was intact in this way. Clever, right? He digs up his father and buries him with his mother. Oh, look, they had a happy marriage and everything worked out great. He wasn't the first to try and rewrite history. So let's talk about Catherine's legacy. Her legacy in Russia, Catherine is remembered as one of the country's great monarchs. She began her story as a political pawn and died a queen. She expanded her country's territory and brought Russia onto the world stage. 
outside of Russia, she's unfairly maligned because she's female, particularly in regards to her sex life. She's also unfairly celebrated because she's female. She's a symbol of liberalism and of girl power that doesn't really deserve to be. Along with being a conqueror and one of the largest slave owners in history, life for Russians got worse under her rule and life for women did not improve at all. So we have to pick a winner. Both were foreigners in their country of rule. Cleopatra descended from Greek slash Macedonian conquerors and Catherine was born in Germany. But both learned the languages and adopted the customs of the country in order to be accepted and rule successfully. Both Catherine and Cleopatra were at a disadvantage for being women, but both turned their femininity into a positive using their charm and sex appeal to forge alliances and attain power. Uncle Ian, what are you thinking? You make some good points, Scott. Unlike a lot of the dictators that we've covered, both of these women had a worldview. So many of the dictators only looked to their own patch. Pol Pot and Devalier are two examples. Whereas both of these women realised that their countries had a, a place in the world and wanted to try and advance that place where they could. In terms of who's the biggest, baddest, meanest, it's Catherine. Yeah. It's got to be. I know we know a lot more about Catherine's rule, and some of that's from her own writings, but the fact that she was exiling people to Siberia, it might have been acceptable at the time, but the fact that she had so many slaves of her own, the fact that the average Russian wasn't any better off in 1796 than he or she had been in 1762... I think Catherine is the biggest, baddest, meanest. Who's more historically significant? Oh, it's a brilliant question. In Western culture, Cleopatra. I think Shakespeare and the cinema have had a lot to do with that, whereas Russia's just always been this big monolith. It was back in the days of Ivan the Terrible. It certainly is under the current regime. Catherine has just seemed to have been a, a step in that journey. And... We've talked previously, Scott, about the demise of the Ottoman Empire, and so Catherine had a role to play in that as well. And, of course, that had a massive effect on the Crimean War in the 1850s and then the position that the Ottoman Empire took in the First World War as well. So the ripple effect was actually quite large of Catherine's incursions. So then, therefore, Catherine's responsible for the failed Gallipoli campaign. <laughs> comes back to the fact that under Catherine's reign that the Russians had pushed that far south back in the 18th century. And the Ottomans wanted some of it back. All right, I'm declaring Catherine the winner. I think she deserves it. Catherine the Great, congratulations. Sorry to Cleopatra, you have been kicked out of the tournament. I want to play a quick game of Dictator Bingo with our new winner, Catherine. Go for it. Orchestrating a coup in full military dress. Tick. Prolific love life. Tick. Book burning. Tick. Naming a city after herself. Tick. Annexing Poland. Tick. Extravagant living. Tick. Promulgating her own literary works throughout the empire. We've seen a bit of that before. That's a red book. 
and Green Book thing to do with thinking of Mao and... Gaddafi's Green Book, wasn't it, Scott, that we learnt about? And Saddam Hussein also sold his books throughout Iraq. Coming to power on a platform of an education program and equal rights for women, that's, that's been a big winner in the past as well, even if you don't deliver. She does very well. Catherine, honestly, I'm very impressed with her dictatorship ability. Dictator bingo doesn't lie. Unlike the average dictator. <laughs> That's it for ladies round. Next week, Uncle Ian, what are we doing next episode? Scott, next time we're going to the Balkans and Southeast Europe. We're going to meet Nikolai Ceausescu of Romania and Marshal Tito of Yugoslavia. It's going to be a fantastic episode. Tito and Ceausescu, you can't get any better than that. Two fantastic commies. Uncle Ian, I'll see you next time. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Scott.